The International IVF Initiative is a worldwide non-profit education project for the assisted reproductive technologies community, sharing scientific and practical knowledge for embryologists, reproductive scientists and anyone working in the ART community. Each episode will share an insight into the world of IVF, along with profiles of legends within the world of ART, latest news and wisdom from our community. Welcome to another episode of Beyond the Webinar from i3. What you're going to hear is the discussion which followed a recent webinar which saw nearly 1,000 people watching a presentation focused on the practice of blast assist biopsy with experienced biopsy practitioners. Now, as always, it was a fascinating conversation highlighting the practicalities when performing this delicate technique in the routine IVF lab. There was valuable advice on the methods, troubleshooting, insight, and tips. And here you're going to join the moderators, Thomas Elliott and Dr. Tony Anderson, as well as speakers, Debbie Venier, Dr. Charlene Aloof, and Dr. Beck Holmes, and some of the i3 team to discuss how the session went. Now, don't forget to check out the show notes attached to this episode, where you'll get a link for the webinar so you can watch it in full. Enjoy. Hey, nice. We did it. Wow, great job. <laughs> that was very well attended. Yeah, that was one of the largest in a while. Good. A lot of positive feedback from a lot of people. Starting, Debbie, with your talk. People people loved it. Oh, thank you. Thanks. I know, I get nervous. Sometimes I feel like I rub people the wrong way. Like, they feel like I'm telling them what to do. And I'm like, I'm not telling you what to do. You can do whatever you want. Just know there's options and you should use a few. Right. Everyone was so good. Your hat, Thomas. I was waiting the whole time to say that. <laughs> like it. It started off with the blue one. I'm not sure if you saw that. I saw yeah, the blue one. The... Yeah. We did. Because <laughs> my sister makes these. My sister's in England and she makes them and sends them over. So I was. Oh, nice. I was just doing a couple for her. Fantastic, everybody. This was this is a, a wonderful session. I think that that the numbers tell the whole story. We had a, a, a huge audience today. What was our yeah. max number? Nine sixty-two. Nice. Nice. I'm Different glad I didn't see all those people. I would have been nervous, probably. <laughs> I did get nervous for a while. I think it was, I'm not a good, like, remember to look at the camera person. And having to work off a laptop when I have so many screens was very confining. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but a room with nearly a thousand people sitting in it is, is very daunting. Yeah. So, anyway, we had lots and lots and lots of questions um many more than we could have have asked it we could have literally asked just questions for the whole hour and a half um and i think we'd still have questions at the end so i think we really managed to cover the, the big questions and you know debbie's talk did fantastic and in, in showing those videos i think that was extremely enlightening you've obviously got a lot of videos to share which is fantastic um and i think that, that you know charlene's talk with um the the rebiopsy is, is something that every embryologist must have have questions on because when we're presented with, with an embryo which has been biopsied before um and you know the challenges of of rebiopsying that and then having cells to be sent away and still having cells to to go back into the patient yeah it's a big challenge um so it was it was very enlightening to see all of your data all of your statistics and so thank I you i did get some texts from people they were very appreciative so like they feel like they i guess they took notes and they can go back to their physicians and say listen this is what this the big publications show so yeah welcome back shyster hi thank you um so how often do you see during you know the tbrs 
where the embryo just doesn't doesn't seem worth it. You know, is, is that have you come across that quite often where if it's like a day seven that was pretty marginal to begin with and then you know you opt to not do because I know you can you talked a little bit about um doing transfer uh like a blind transfer versus the rebiopsy. And sometimes right. see those cases I'm like would it have been worth it to just do the blind transfer at that point instead of you know now just just disposing this embryo. The situation with those TBRs is that we plan them uh according to, you know, when the lab has free time, we could just do, oh, hey, we got a couple hours, we have some thaw biopsies to do now, let's do it and then send the, and send the the tubes out to the referral lab. It's, it's never that the patient is synchronized to have a transfer. So I'd have to revit it anyway, and then hope, hopefully it warms. I have had a couple, I mean, not me personally, lab staff has, have had a couple of embryos that just didn't look good after the thaw and they were discarded. So um, probably ones that probably should have been frozen in the first place, but it was a freeze all cycle. So what are you going to do? Yeah. Okay. And, that, and I, I know it's a trend and I'm, but I'm hearing more and more and more, which is really disconcerting. Because we're already short staff in the labs, not just my labs, everyone's lab. And then to add you know, some, some, either some rebiopsies or some TBRs to it is, um, it's really daunting. You know, it, it, it's, it's intimidating to the new staff coming in that we have this additional work to do. So when Scott came out and said it was over $300 for a single embryo to biopsy, that's a lot of money. Yeah. yeah. No. I think it'd be even maybe more depreciating out equipment and things like that. Cause I know yeah. like ICSI, you break it down, it's around $200 just to do ICSI, much less the time to buy it, thaw it, the time to, for the bit medias and or the right. those are really expensive. I heard Cooper say that the thaw rebiopsy euploidy rates around 50%. Um, I don't have any data on that on my own, um, but does anybody have any thoughts on that? Well, it's consistent with the data that I, I published. It's, it was, you know, 50 to 60%. They estimate around 48% annuity rate, all ages combined. Um, at GP, we don't have a lot of rebiopsy data. Um, but in my previous life, we had some rebiopsy data, and it was very consistent with age versus aneuploidy. It's what you would expect. So, and it had nothing to do with whether it was a no call or a non actionable result in terms of like an indeterminate at that time. Um, but it was it was consistent. If you're rebiopsying a 24 year old, you would expect that there's a high euploidy rate. If you're rebiopsying a 42 year old, you would would expect that if you got an actionable result, it would probably be aneuploid. So yeah. I thought your slide were showing that the C grade embryos tend to have the poorest outcome from the rebiopsies. I, I I don't have a lot of C data to look at that. And I wish I wished I could get more of that kind of data. Of course, what is really a C? What do I call a C what you call a C or yeah. Giles calls a C or Shaista calls a C. Or a B minus, which is what I do sometimes. <laughs> I love the minus. I love the minus plus. I always have. Yeah, that that study by Neil in um, I think it's RMA New Jersey. It was just really comprehensive from trying to establish where the problem was in terms of non-actionable calls to rebiopsy data to um, you know even the less than thirty-five category had a seven point four percent non-actionable 
results after their secondary biopsies and in their end was pretty big. So I thought that was pretty huge. Well, I was on another webinar one time and where, where uh, uh, Krista and Ivani was really high, no read rates. Just, I mean, I just want to go visit the lab just to see what the heck she does. But she called me out on, you know, I think people just do things just because they get bored. And I'm kind of that ADD kind of guy, like, let's try that. And, uh, but, you know, she has that no read, low, no read rate doing only laser. She doesn't do anything else in her lab. And it's, it's a big lab. I think they do like 5,000 cycles a year, almost 100% PGT. And only had like a 0.3% no read rate, really, really low. Mine's usually run around one to one to one or one and a half percent in most of the labs that I work with. Interesting. That's impressive too. You know, anything less than 3%, we like to say, you know, and, and as I said, it's a, it's a spectrum, you know, some of the, the, you know, the larger labs that do a lot more biopsies have a lower non-actionable rate than labs that um, just, just kind of do the occasional biopsy. It's, it's practice. It's like, you know, getting good in ICSI. You just got to keep doing it and doing it. So. So one of the things I wanted to ask too, sorry, is how do we, I say I put five to seven cells in there, but I don't know for sure how many cells there are. And then you said PGDIS. I think Debbie said PGDIS now recommends 10, but how do you know you're only getting 10 or five or four to eight? And how does the genomics company know how many cells there are? Like, how do they know what there is? The two that I've worked for, you, you don't. It's all relative, right? It's all relative um, yeah. complement of DNA. I could tell you that, you know, from me doing biopsies, if I have four or five nuclei in my holding pipette, and that's typically how you can see cells, right, is by nuclei, you know that one of them at least is, is going to get lysed. It's not like we're cutting out maps of the state and you're cutting between Arizona. I mean, you're, you're just lasering and there's going to be some lysis and loss of nuclei. So I tend to be, I tend to pull up a little more than four to six in my pipette, knowing that the outside two are going to get cut. (laughs) Yeah. It's a guessing game. We don't know, Tony, we're guessing. Um, It's three-dimensional. We're like, "Eh, that's, you know, five to six. Is it maybe seven or eight? It might be. Um, I just know I want more than four. I want to be able to give at least four intact cells to that lab. So sometimes do I do a biopsy and it's 10 or 12? Sometimes, you know, it's never perfectly consistent. But where does the mosaicism determine? Because it's based on a percentage of, of mosaic cells. So is it of what we said we put in there or is it of what they, the genomics company determines? They see, no, more? they don't. Well, we, what we say we put in there, they don't use that in any calculation at all. No, it's it's count based analysis. Yeah, it's just based on the count based analysis. With NGS, for certain, you know, you could see, you know, if you expand, like, say, we'll say chromosome fifteen. If you expand out the data from chromosome fifteen, you can see if it's really not falling between, you know, the 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 one, two, or three copy line, or zero if it's a it's if it's a, a monosomy for that particular chromosome. That's really where it falls in line. So I've got a two-part question. I've been asking a lot of two-part questions. I'm sorry for this, but but they got, kind of go together. The first part of the question from um, Charlene, you mentioned that about 40% of, of the embryos that are tested um, have aneuploidy, and this can affect uh, rates of miscarriage and other complications. Um, so the, the first part of the question is, should we do biopsy and testing for all patients? 
Now, the second part of the question is that I'm assuming that biopsy and the biopsy procedure itself causes or can cause some detriment to the implantation potential of the embryo. Perhaps, especially if you start taking 10 cells instead of you know, four to five. Should we be doing, taking both of those into consideration, should we be doing embryo biopsy and PGT on all of our patients? I don't think so, no. And certainly not the young age category that still has, you know, 80 plus percent um, normal chances. I mean, we, um, you know, there are multiple studies. Certainly the STAR study didn't show that there was any benefit in the younger age category. Um, you know, it's still, it's still technical. It's still invasive. Um, you know, it's even the best of the best can struggle with it, with a, a biopsy that can later affect implantability, implantation rate. So certainly in the, you know, in the mid to late age category, I would be doing it more. Thank you. I worked in a lab that was really, really heavy in egg donors. And we did biopsy on almost all of those egg donor patients. Just this was patient request. This was not recommended to them, but the patients wanted it. Unique population of patients. Um, so we had a significant amount of data. So what I started doing was when I did my biopsy, I would pick the embryo I would have chosen for transfer. And that was always embryo number one. So when biopsy results came in, I always looked at number one. Was it euploid? Was it not? And like Charlene just said, you know, the young population, 20% of those or 80% are going to be euploid and 20% are going to be aneuploid. But I was looking at how often am I picking the euploid? Because that's really what it gets down to. And it was like 30, 70. So yes, your, your data, I think is right, Charlene. But when, when I just was comparing what I would have picked for transfer, whether or not number one, embryo number one was euploid, I found, and this isn't published data, but this is data that I had at um, the clinic that I used to work at. And it, I wasn't good at picking the euploid embryo. I wanted to be, I'm like, this is beautiful. It's the most gorgeous embryo ever. It's beautiful. It's an egg donor, gorgeous. And I wasn't good at picking the euploid embryo. Well, there's no say. doubt that PGT reduces the time to pregnancy, especially when you have a young candidate that has a ton of blasts. You know, if you have six, seven beautiful blasts on day five or six, um, I mean, you could you could base it on morphology. But even if one of those embryos is abnormal and you just happen to pick that one 30% of the time, right, Debbie? And then that's one FET cycle that they paid for their, their meds. I mean, I guess the average... Average FET cycle is probably $2,500 or more. So that's a lot of cost for something that we could have avoided early on. We're just doing so, PGT. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm torn because, you know, I'm a lab director of uh, stress labs that have a lot of volume and, and adding PGT to everybody, although it seems like we're trending that way. Um, you know, it, it's a lot of work. And then part of me sees the data from, you know, a PGT company that, you know, it's, it's, which would show a benefit just to reduce that time, even if it's 25% of the time that you could get it right the first time. That's that's pretty good. So. so then are you choosing what's best for the patient or what's best for your lab? Yeah. Well, one of the things that I think that'll come out and it's, you know, I've actually don't make too many friends when you put it this way, but, you know, if you look at what the cost per delivery is with PGT, 
for, you know, for young patients, I agree. Like, I think I was one of the first people that said for young patients less than 35, my pregnancy rates were just as good without doing PGT. Then, you know, one of the things that reason why young people do PGT though is for gender selection and the non-invasive work doesn't really tell you that. So I like where the non-invasive work's going because now we don't have to put that stress on the embryo. But if you take someone who's less young that does, once you finally get the euploid embryo, there is a equalization of pregnancy, but they're gonna spend, you know, say $100,000 getting there. So if you look at the dollar per percent actual take home baby, I don't know that PGT actually adds that much to the patient's overall success. You know, maybe instead of reporting pregnancy rates per transfer, pregnancy, like percent of pregnancies per retrieval, because once you get a retrieval and you do, and you get, say, a young patient who has four normal, four embryos or six embryos, they're going to get three, three babies out of that. But someone who is, you know, say 42, and it takes like five retrievals to get that baby. Now, instead of looking at it, like, are we looking at it the right way? I think you just need to rethink how we're looking at the costs and the successes that we're reporting. You said somebody was less young. Yeah, I heard that. I like that as well. Less young. <laughs> Super, isn't it? I've never heard that, Tony, but that was classic. Yeah, I'm less young. I'm the least. I'm the least young out of all of you guys. So. <laughs> I'm not sure about that. <laughs> uh, I've got a quick follow-up question. Uh, we sometimes, even with patients that are older, uh, they may come through and get a single embryo, a single blastocyst. What are the benefits of really biopsying that? It will add extra cost, and then make a, a, a result. Um, which means it's not going to be transferred anyway. But if we transfer it, it could lead to, to a pregnancy. Um, the process of the biopsy could reduce the chances of implanting. But if we do test it, we will have extra information. So what are the pros and cons of an older patient or a patient that just has a single embryo? Should they be having that single embryo tested? I think for some people, that's an emotional thing. So like if you have a 42-year-old patient who's like all emotional and all worked up and all stressed, just the fact for her, you know, I would probably, if it were me, say just transfer it and we'll see what happens. But I think for some of those highly emotional patients that are major stress cases, to have them go through the transfer, waiting to see if they're pregnant, potentially finding out they're pregnant, and then potentially miscarrying is so much more traumatic to them than us just saying, we're going to test it. It's not normal. We're not going to do a transfer. And it's a little more peaceful and less stressful to that patient. That's my theory. The other side is that if it's not a good quality embryo when you biopsy it just to get that information, um, and if it comes back as non-actionable. So now you have an embryo that has no results, probably not a good candidate to re-biopsy. Are you going to do the transfer anyway? with consultation and, and consent. Um, and then if she doesn't get pregnant, was it really just because you biopsied that poor quality embryo, which may have turned around in utero. So I don't know, it's just a tough call. Mm -hmm. yeah. Dawn Kelk has, has a fantastic slide of uh, her yeah. Hall of Fame, which I'm sure many of you have seen, which is uh, uh, pictures of poor quality embryos that have gone on to produce pregnancies. Um, I don't have that slide. I don't like since we since you know we've been putting back single embryos. There has not been a single embryo transfer of super undesirable quality that has led to a live birth in the practices that I that I direct. 
in the days of old, when we put back six and one of them was nice and the rest were kind of crappy, maybe it was the crappy one that it planted. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but with SETs, we could pretty much, at least in my hands, I could say that I don't have a wall of fame like Dawn. So going back to Thomas, what you talked about um, with, you know, somebody saying out of the 20 something or 30, whatever, what, how many embryos was it? So um, we looked at pictures, 29 pictures of blastocysts. Yes. yes. So some, somebody said yes to nine and somebody said yes to 20 something. So you're talking about that range because, you know, grading something as an AB versus a BA, that's not a big deal. I don't think it's a big deal to any of us, but what I get a little anxiety about is, you know, when, when I look at an embryo and I say, yes, I would, I'll do that one. And then, you know, one of my colleagues walks in and they're like, no, I wouldn't do it. So the, the yes and no, I think is a, is a much bigger factor, um, that plays into it rather than just these grades that we assign them. Um, but you know, Debbie, you said that you were looking at your number ones and there's no way to know. Unfortunately, morphology does not indicate floydy status. So how can you, I'm just like, what do you, you know, I try really hard to not look at the patient's day five history when I'm looking at day six or day seven or say, okay, well, she already had 20 embryos for all we know. I mean, hopefully not 20, but you know what I mean? Out of 20 blasts, you know, you would want something to be normal, but if she has a 21st, what if that's the one? And if I'm being super stringent, what if that mediocre B minus whatever embryo is the one that is normal? How do you, you grapple with that? I don't, if she has 20, I'm not worried about it. I really don't grapple. I don't lose sleep over that, you know? And for me, like the number is, I like them to have eight to 10. Once you get over 10 for me, I'm like, you have a whole family in that set of 10, you know, depending on their age. I mean, if you're, if they're 42, I'm going to biopsy everything. Cause I've been there when everything's come back aneuploid, but if they're less than 35 and they have 10 or 12 embryos already, I don't lose sleep over being more strict on day six. Even if you don't have status, right? No, I don't know the Floydy status. No. Obviously, if it's an AA, AB, BA, I'm going to do those regardless. I will yeah. biopsy 42 embryos for one patient because it absolutely meets criteria and it's a yes. But if it's a borderline one, it's a quick no if they already have 10 or 12 embryos uh, biopsied, but if it's borderline and they have two, then I'm gonna lean towards, ah, I'll do it. So it's like, I don't know where people's numbers are, but for the ones that are on the fence, I'm gonna be lenient if they have less than eight or 10, and I'm gonna be strict if they have more than 10 for the fence ones. But yeah. if it's an AA, an AB or a BA, it's a yes all the time for me, no matter if they have 27 embryos or not. Does that make sense? Yeah. One final question, and then we'll wrap this up. Um, and this is for, for Tony and Debbie and Charlene. If you are looking at an embryo on day five, and it's somewhat expanded, but you think, oh, this might be a, a much better embryo tomorrow, um, but it may also have hatched tomorrow. Uh, are you going to be more likely to do, do a day five biopsy or day six biopsy? Day six all the way, baby. I'm a huge proponent for waiting. And I know everyone's like, but day fives are better. Not all the time. <laughs> I'm not a huge fan. And I know there's data out there that says day five embryos have a higher implantation rate than day six. But I do think that a good quality embryo on day five that is pushed to day six doesn't necessarily have a lower implantation rate. 
And iGenomics has come out with a published study that shows that, and they have data for that. But I'm a proponent for waiting, get the cells so that you can have a smaller mass of biopsy with more DNA because you have more cells, but you're actually taking less mass of the embryo and you're impacting the embryo less with that biopsy because that embryo has more cells on day six. So like Bill's lab, San Diego Fertility Center, they do about 80% of their biopsies on day six now. They've slowly been evolving to waiting, waiting, and pushing to day six, letting those embryos expand. Now, obviously, they're not hatching on day three. If you're hatching on day three, they're going to be all hatched out all over the place. So this would only be for labs that are not hatching on day three, that they're not completely hatched on day six but they're very big and there's a lot of cells. So getting a nice biopsy with eight to 10 cells in it is still a very small biopsy, but there's a lot of cells there because it's done usually two more divisions in the last 24 hours. So Fantastic. that's my theory. Thank you. Charlene, Tony? I'd wait. I would definitely wait. My experience is I like to, I like to see an even distribution of day five and day six. Um, I think when people... I think my embryologists get lazy if they're pushing more out to day six, especially if it's on a Saturday or Sunday, they're kind of like, well, I'll just wait till Monday. But I, I can tell you that my implantation rates are significantly higher with day five embryos. And, you know, you know, I have to look at what my data says and what the statistics say. You know, if iGenomics comes out and says that day five or day six doesn't matter, they're looking at everybody's data. And, uh, you know, they, you know, you, the pregnancy rates across the board in, in the U.S. are, you know, erratic, kind of, you know, and they're not, they're not consistent. So I look at my data and day five always has a significantly higher implantation rate. So I shoot for that. And so I try to maximize my day fives. If I only had one and it wasn't quite ready at nine o'clock in the morning, I'll biopsy any time during the day on day five. Um, my, I try to, uh, my day six is done before noon because my implantation rates actually drop after that noon time on day six. So, and if I go out to day seven, it's a Hail Mary. I don't, don't really know what's going to happen with those embryos. So that's my, my shot at it. Fantastic. Thank you very much, everybody. We'll wind it up now. So everyone can go into bed or sleep or continue the rest yeah. of their, their daily life. But this was a thank you so much to everybody. It's a fantastic session. Thank you, Debbie. Thank you, Charlene. Thank you, Tony. And yeah. everyone behind the scenes, shout to Giles. Becca's left already. But, and, and Marianne, it's been a, a wonderful session. I, I've learned a lot. I hope that our audience has learned a lot. And it's been wonderful spending time with all of you. It was awesome. Thanks for the yeah, opportunity great. very much. It was brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Be sure to visit ivfmeeting.com where you can watch our back catalogue of webinars. Plus, you can sign up for future ones, download our electronic membership card and find all our social media so we can stay in touch.